0: Well, there's a pretty huge event that happened this week at Hinson. I don't know if uh, all of you are aware of this. There was a great bake-off that happened with the youth group this week. Uh, I believe congratulations are in order for uh, Anika Pavarenta's group, Hannah Fable, Catherine Widgery, Lathia Cunningham. Well done, well done. You, uh, you baked the best biscuits, I guess. I didn't get to try them, so I'm taking others' word for it. But you know, for these groups that were uh, working on their stellar baking skills, they needed to follow a recipe, they needed a plan. Otherwise, uh, who knows what would have happened. I personally thought it would have been hilarious uh, if the leaders would have given them maybe a bad recipe and see if they could make it good, right? Uh, if they gave them maybe bad instructions, bad ingredients, Uh, it'd be a lot funnier to see what would happen. It'd be near impossible to actually make something good, even if you had just a bad recipe. But what if not only did you have a bad recipe, but bad ingredients that were rotten, that were soiled? It'd be impossible to make anything good out of that. You'd kind of just pick it all up, throw it in the trash can, and do something else. I think sometimes we think about our world in the same way. How can God make anything good out of this? It's all bad. It's all soiled. It's all tainted with sin. Surely nothing good can come out of this. In our text today, I hope that we get an opportunity to see, to rest in the fact that actually God does have a plan. And out of that plan, even with the worst ingredients possible, there's hope. There's good that God could use in work and work in humanity. For us to be able to dwell on the fact that in this world, we feel the loss of how can anything come out of where our world is politically? How do we get good out of our, our current school systems or social standings or my workplace? And this morning I want to argue that if our hope and our faith are in those things, nothing good will come out of it. What we have to resign ourselves to is faith and hope actually in God's plan. And so this morning as we study together, there's one main idea that I want us to be settled with, which is this. In a world of wickedness, have faith in God's plan. In a world of wickedness, have faith in God's plan. We've been studying characters of faith from Hebrews 11, but looking at them in the Old Testament context in which their story is lived out. And again, this morning, we're going to have the opportunity to think of someone else who lived out their faith and to consider what that meant between them and the Lord and how that applies to us in our own lives. Uh, we have had the opportunity to think about uh, saints who have gone before. And most recently, in, uh, a few weeks ago, studying Genesis chapter 5, we saw a comparison between Adam and Eve's sons who were living, the line of Cain and the line of Seth, and how they were headed towards evil very quickly. And that even in those lines where there was good in the life of Enoch, everyone else, their life ended in death. There was a penalty and a punishment for sin. And yet, there was like a small glimpse of hope given at the end of chapter 5. But there was this guy named Noah who was born. And so this morning, we're going to focus on Noah. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, that's at the very front on page 5. So you'll be right at the start of the the Bible on page 5. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 6. And to begin, I'm just going to look and and read verses 1 through 8 and help us think about uh, where we're going to start our sermon here this morning. Would you follow along as I read Genesis 6, verses 1 to 8. "'When mankind began to multiply in the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wise for themselves.' And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth, both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. This morning, uh, I seek to walk through two points, the first of which is God grieves our wickedness, and the second is that God gives a plan for salvation. We'll spend a few minutes uh, in this first point uh, thinking about the text that we just read here, verses 1 through 8, that God grieves our wickedness. Here we see, uh, following after uh, a story and a lineage that was told of Cain and Seth and all their descendants, that humanity continues on here in in chapter 6, verse 1, that mankind continued to multiply, to fill the earth as they were instructed to do, and that there was life, that there were many uh, who continued on, even after the, the line of people that we had already seen. These lives, we see though, are filled with sin and corruption. The Lord pointing out in his speech here, that his spirit will not remain with them, that they are corrupt. Now, a lot of questions come up about who are these characters? We aren't told a lot. We're told that they are sons of God, daughters of mankind, some people named Nephilim. And I'm not going to answer all your questions because people have argued about these terms and who these people are for centuries, And what I want to point to is what we're meant to see in this text. Not to know the exact definition of who these people are and exactly what they did, but to see how they are described. They were mighty men, powerful men, and they were famous. And what were they famous for? Well, what matters is what scripture tells us they're famous for. They're famous for the depth of their sin. And that is described starting in verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Here we see the depth of humanity's sin. Their thoughts being turned to wickedness all the time. And so it doesn't really matter exactly who these people are. What matters is actually how they were living before a holy God, how from generation to generation to generation, they turned away from following after the Lord, living as righteous and holy. And so God responds to sin in verse six. He regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Not only do we see in verse 5 that God saw the wickedness, but he responds in verse 6. Here we see how the Lord felt about sin. This indeed is a very difficult passage for us to read language of a God who regrets creation. What are we supposed to do with this? How can a holy God regret that he made mankind and that he made the earth and animals? Well, we are told in 1 Samuel 15 that the eternal one of Israel, he does not lie or change his mind for he is not a man changes his mind. Here's an assurance in Scripture that God doesn't just change based on a whim on how he's feeling, but actually is quite decided in what he has done and in his plan, which we'll see here in a moment. It forces us to deal with a word like regret and start thinking about Maybe the way I feel regret in my life is not exactly how a holy and perfect God feels and understands regret. Perhaps I need to consider, as best as I'm able, how a holy God regrets sin. And we have the same word that's used in verse 6. It's also used at the end of verse 7. But a different word that helps give us context is at the end of verse 6. That he was deeply grieved. And here I think is what helps us start to grasp the idea of what is meant in the wording of regret. Some versions use the word sorry, some use the word grieved in all three instances here. And I think that's helpful, giving us a context to think about God's regret of grieving, mourning sin. But I want to provide maybe a helpful illustration that you and I can start to relate to that might give us a context in which God regrets creation. For you and I, when it is deep sadness that I have to confront someone else's sin in their life, is it something I want to do? No. Is it something that I'm excited to do? No. Is it something I wish that I didn't have to do? Yes. And yet, as a faithful Christian, I am compelled to confront sin, even in my own life and the life of someone else. This goes to many areas of life when we have to make really hard decisions, difficult decisions that we wish weren't decisions we had to make. I think this is a small glimpse at God and his regret. Not that he wishes he hadn't made creation, but a sorrow that what he made is steeped in sin. A pain. Really probably the best way to even think about the deeply grieved phrasing there is his heart being filled with pain over sin. Because we're reassured in Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, John 17, verse 24, and 1 Peter 1, verse 20, that God intended before the foundation of the world to lay out his plan of salvation. He had a plan for creation. And God wasn't going to change that. From the from before he created any of the world, he already had a plan in place. He already knew what was going to be accomplished. And that gives us confidence that even in a text like this, where the language is hard for us to understand. That God wasn't going to give up on his creation, but instead was deeply wounded by our sin. I don't want us to miss even here the implications of the sin in verse 7. It wasn't just that mankind was going to receive judgment. No, it was together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky. Mankind's sin and deep depravity had implications on all of creation, which is a helpful reminder to us that our sin does not just impact me. My sin doesn't just impact my life and my decisions. No, even on a smaller scale, it impacts those who are around me. And on a much larger scale, my sin grieves God. So I'm not going to stand up here and tell you you need to stop sinning. I'm pretty sure the vast majority of us in here are quite convinced that that's true. We need to do better at not sinning. What I want us to think about out of this text is how sin grieves the Lord. And therefore, is to think about, what is my view of God? And how my sin grieves him. See, I'm not convinced that actually just trying to do better and sin less is the answer. I think growing in my love and my compassion for a savior and a God who created this world compels me to love him more. And to seek him more. And therefore to turn away from sin. And so rather than in our minds saying, I need to sin less, I want to challenge us to actually love God more, to grow in our love for him, to have a bigger picture of who God is, to rejoice in him more often, to meditate on him more often, to be settled in him and his greatness, in his holiness, in his purity. And in that great view of who God is, to be compelled in my own heart to love him more. I think this easily applies to our lives. When we speak to a friend, loved one, perhaps a spouse harshly. You know, if we put ourselves kind of in a third party and we watch two people and one person speaks very harshly towards another and that person says, that hurt me. That language, the way you spoke, it was it was hurtful to me. It causes me grief. Please don't do that. And that person says, okay, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. And the next day, We see them do it again, speak harshly, and we see the grief and the pain that it causes. And the next day, it happens again, and the next day, and the next day. And we don't start to question, does that person just need to try harder not to offend the person they love? But we do start to question, one, do they even realize that they're hurting that person and do they need to understand how badly it hurts? Maybe more importantly, too, do they need to understand that they need to love that person more? They need to have their compassions turned to that person to realize, I don't want to cause that person harm. And so as someone who stands on the outside, we might look at that relationship and say, do you even love that person? If they're that close of a friend, if it's your spouse, why would you speak that way? Do you love them? Do you understand what your love for them would even look like? would look like not doing the thing that is causing them grief. I think for you and I, it's what we should be compelled to do in our own walk with the Lord. To grow in our love and our knowledge, our intimate knowledge of God. That he would continue to fill our hearts with joy in his salvation. That we continue to be filled with an, an awe of his righteousness and his holiness. Being compelled to worship him instead of ourselves to worship him instead of the things of this world. And so I think our challenge is to find ourselves given to God's word and to be in prayer, to meditate on him and to spend time with God's people to build up a great view of who God is, to live in awe of his majesty. Because here in this text, we see that God will not endure wickedness and sin forever. There's a punishment that is due sin and it is death. And here at the beginning of Genesis six, we see that God is grieved by this wickedness and he delivers a message of judgment. And yet verse eight exists and praise God. Noah, however, found favor With the Lord. As much as we feel the weight of wickedness in the world and perhaps in our own hearts, we rejoice in verses like verse 8 that are going to give us a contrast of somebody who's different than the unrighteous world. And what does that mean? It means that God had a plan that He was going to work out through Noah. And so as we recognize a world in wickedness, we also have to focus our hope in God's plan and have faith in that plan. So secondly, let's see God's plan of salvation. Do you follow along as I read Genesis chapter 6 verses 9, and we're going to go through chapter 7 verse 10. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them all, uh, destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark. Make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood. Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah and to the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. You are to take with you seven pairs, a male and its female of all the clean animals and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female and seven pairs, male and female of the birds of the sky in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing I have made, I will wipe off the face of the earth. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the floodwaters. When the clean animals, unclean animals, birds and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each, male and female came to Noah. And entered the ark just as God had commanded him. Seven days later, the floodwaters came on the earth. We see here at the beginning of the passage that I just read in chapter six, verse nine, uh, we're told that Noah is a righteous man; that he's blameless among his contemporaries, those that he lived with; that he was one who walked with God. And then we're given a recount of what. God had seen and had determined that the earth was corrupt, that there was wickedness in the world. And in this, we are given a beautiful contrast of one who stands out among the rest, who was righteous, who was one who was blameless among his contemporaries. He lived a life that was without blame to those around him. He walked with God. One who stood out, among all others, I believe in Aladdin, this is called the uh, <clears throat> diamond in the rough. If I remember correctly, something that should stand out to us. One man, an entire generation, that God points to, who is righteous and blameless. Maybe it's not all that bad if we stand out from the world around us when we're standing out because we're ones who walk with God and follow after him. I think often in our culture and our world, we feel the weight of standing out. We're odd. Christians are a bit different. We're a little weird. All right, sometimes we can't help that. And I'd say particularly when it comes to our faith, that's to be expected, that we are not like the world. And through this man, God intends to work out a plan to save creation. And what was this plan? I'm guessing it's not exactly what Noah was expecting. God comes to Noah, says, Noah, I know you're 500 years old, but I want you to build a massive wooden boat on land. I know you don't see any water, but you need to build this huge boat. And then after you build it, you and your kids and their wives and your wife, you're going to get on the boat, but also you need to like have all these animals, two of every kind. They're going to be on the boat with you. Uh, and if, if you noticed um, in verse 19, uh, he's supposed to keep them alive. All right. So it wasn't just like, no, just put the animals on the boat and hope for the best. Uh, it was his job to build a boat over a hundred years, spent building this boat to put a bunch of animals on there and to wait to see what God does. What a plan. I wonder what Noah thought about this plan when God first told him. Before we think in our minds of like the wonderful, fantastical stories that are told in culture of Noah and the flood, I'd like us to deal with the reality of what Noah faced. The size of the task put in front of him by God to build such a vessel. And for what purpose? Well, he physically could not see any purpose around that boat, but to build it. And then once he's on the boat, well, if you read the rest of the story, you'd find out for 150 days, he is stuck on a moving zoo, feeding animals, cleaning up after animals, taking care of, I would assume, some seasick animals. That sounds miserable. Let's be honest. That's not a plan any of us come up with and say, this is a great idea. Let's go live on a boat for 150 days with a bunch of animals and my closest family. Right? We know how that turns out. (laughs) And yet this was God's plan. It was definitely not the plan that Noah expected. And yet this is the plan God lines out for Noah. To be the one who saves creation. One of the small nuggets that I don't want us to miss is found right in the middle of all these instructions. Here's God's plan from really verses 14 all the way through 710. And right there in the middle, in chapter 6, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. God made a promise to Noah. Here's the plan. And when this plan is done, I'm establishing a covenant with you. That language would indeed stand out to a man like Noah, who's remembering that God is one who had made covenants before with Noah's great ancestors, that he would have a people for himself, that he would send a deliverer to redeem his creation. And here, Noah is hearing the language that God is going to establish a covenant with him. Now, for those of us that study the Bible a lot, hopefully this is sending off kind of sirens of, "Ah, I've heard this language before. One guy who's righteous, a plan that really doesn't make a lot of sense to us as humans, that seems kind of crazy and wild and huge. And God establishing a covenant with his people. Well, that's because we're told about a plan just like this later on in the New Testament. Really all throughout Scripture, but we get to see it in the New Testament of one who also lived righteously, who was without blame to his contemporaries, one who walked with God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to this earth and lived a perfect life, actually even more perfect than Noah, because part of the story that we're not going to get to today is that when Noah gets off the boat, we quickly find out the righteousness only went so far. And Noah was also a sinner. And therefore, the need for a redeemer continued on. And so we are told a story, a plan of salvation of a man who would live a perfect life without sin, who did not deserve death. And yet, he died on a cross. He was crucified with sinners with thieves. Jesus Christ, the perfect, blameless son of God died on the cross as part of God's plan for salvation. The difference between Jesus and Noah was Jesus was perfect and Jesus is God. And his death on the cross was not the end of the story. His death on the cross was the defeat to sin itself. That sin would not conquer everybody, but that Jesus Christ, through defeating sin, would bring life. We're told about this plan in John 11, where Jesus says of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus claiming that he was that plan. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so in Jesus' own teaching and in his life lived and his death on the cross, we see the plan of salvation that doesn't really make sense to us as mankind. And yet to step back and rejoice in God's mercy. Here displayed in the life of Noah, that God held on to one man in his family to redeem and save creation. the same mercy displayed in the life of Jesus on the cross that he is one in whom we find salvation because he died on the cross and rose from the dead three days later. And in his resurrection, showing that he had defeated death, that there was life to be found in him and in him alone through Jesus Christ. And so for us, Who hear that message, we're compelled to think, how did God plan to to save salvation? to, To keep a people for himself? To send a deliverer all along the way? Well, it was through Jesus Christ. And that is the message that all of us are called to trust in. To repent of sin, to say, no, sin is not the way of this world, of this life, to live. But we are compelled to respond and turn from that. To repent and to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation because it's through him alone that we can be saved. A plan of salvation in which God through Jesus established a new covenant with mankind. As we read about in Hebrews chapter eight, a covenant that God would never leave us. If he calls us to himself, that we can walk with him in newness of life, to see actually the way that Noah lived and realize we can do that in an even greater way as we seek to live righteously, as we walk with God to point others to the fact that it's not my life lived righteously that counts. It's that Jesus lived righteously that counts and to find my salvation in Christ alone. My friend, if you are here this morning and you haven't put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, I want to remind you, Ephesians chapter two says, you are saved by grace through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. I want to challenge you that today is the day to trust in the Lord for salvation. It is not through your own good works and your own good deeds, but resting in Christ's finished work on the cross that we are saved. If you don't know what it looks like to trust in Christ, to live by faith, come talk to me or anyone that was up here on stage, talk to somebody that you came with. We would love to tell you more about what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are Christians who have believed this message, what are we called to do? Are we supposed to just live like Noah? Be really righteous? Blameless among contemporaries? Walk with God? Well, kind of, but not completely. And I want to explain that. I want to spend the last few minutes here in this sermon really thinking about the application of this story. How does it really apply to our hearts? Well, I do want to point out the way that Noah lived and how did he respond to this plan that God had laid out? Well, we see in chapter 6, verse 22. We see in chapter 7, verse 5. And we see in chapter 7, verse 9 that Noah did everything that God had commanded him. He obeyed. No matter how crazy of a story this sounded to Noah, he followed God's instruction. So, wasn't this enough to like save all of mankind? No, because Noah wasn't perfect. As much as he obeyed God and did as God had commanded We do know later on in the story that Noah is a sinner. And yet we're called to see some truth in the way that Noah lived by obeying God's commands. And what I want to settle into is why? Why did Noah obey? Well, this is where our context of Hebrews 11 is extremely helpful. In Hebrews 11, verse 7, we're told by faith. Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How was Noah actually saved? How did he inherit righteousness? Oh, it was through his faith in what God had told him. It was in his faith that he obeyed through godly fear, honoring the Lord by following God's instruction, by doing what the Lord had called him to do. It wasn't just a ridiculous blind obedience to some crazy story, but it was obedience led by a heart that was settled in faith. Yes, in something he couldn't see, in something he didn't know, and yet his faith in God compelled him to obey. And so I want to spend time applying how our faith informs and motivates our obedience. As I said earlier, I think we all know we want to walk away from sin. We want to be ones who pursue obedience, but to understand the heart in that is really what is important here. To understand how faith. Informs the way that we live. So, I want to give three areas. Now, as I was thinking about this uh, in in application for myself and for all of you, uh, I I did get a bit kind of in my head, so to speak, because thinking about the story of Noah uh, is easy to jump to all sorts of conclusions about the ways that you and I should obey in this life. We don't have an ark, we aren't really concerned about a worldwide flood because. Later on in chapter eight and nine, God promises he won't flood the entire earth and destroy it again. So how are we going to see what our faith looks like? There's so many ways we could apply it. And I decided just to root myself as best as I can in this culture and day and age in Noah's shoes. Noah was given a huge task. How did Noah respond in faith? Well, I want to start with faith. When he was frustrated by the world, Noah's living in a world just absolutely covered in wickedness and sin, their thoughts and the intent of their heart being evil and wicked. In that culture, in that society, and in that world, Noah had faith. He had faith in God's plan and not his own. So I think often in our own hearts, we have a lot of faith in all the good things I can do to reform my neighborhood or my kid's school or the political system or my workplace. And no doubt we should be compelled to seek to live a righteous and holy life and compel others to do so and to live righteously and, and to change. But we are fooling ourselves if we think in our own strength and our own power, we're going to conform the whole world. But it is faith that God is at work that gives me a context to live in a world that is increasingly frustrating. When I see sin, when I see decay and corruption all around me, it is faith that God indeed does have a plan and will have mercy and save some. And therefore, in my heart, I'm compelled by faith to bear witness to the plan that God has told us the plan that I have trusted in and have faith in, my faith in what God is going to do in salvation ultimately is what compels me to live in this world, to tell others that God has a plan and it's better than what you're seeking. It's better than wealth and entertainment. It's better than fun and living life to its fullest. It is my faith that compels me to be one who is preaching the gospel in every area of life as often as I can rather than being angry with the world and its sin. Because I won't be able to change the world. Can't change all of it. But I can bear witness to what God has said about how he will change this world. And my faith in what God has promised will compel me to do that. Secondly, not only do we need faith in a frustrating world, we need faith when we fear man. I can well imagine that Noah didn't find it easy to tell people that he heard from a God that no one could see about a plan that didn't really make sense. And he dedicated a hundred years of his life to do it. Somewhere in there, Noah had to deal with fear of man. What does the guy down the street think about this massive boat I'm building in my front yard? I mean, I kind of feel that when I leave like projects undone outside my house, right? This guy has a huge boat for a hundred years, uh, probably up on blocks. There's weeds growing everywhere. Uh, he, he's feeling this fear of man. What do these people think about me? What have I given my life to? Is it really worth it? And yet his faith compelling him towards obedience to continue to do as God has instructed him. Is your faith compel you to turn off the voice of the world and to turn your ear away from what do other people think about the way I'm living, about what I'm called to in the gospel. Teenagers, I want to speak specifically to you guys because you got to learn this now. This is huge, All right, The world itself tells us, don't be driven by what other people think about you. Be your own person. Whatever you're convinced is the right thing for you. That's what you should do. You shouldn't have to listen to anyone else. It's partially right. You shouldn't live life compelled by what other people think about you. You'll be miserable. But it's not completely right. Because we can't be led by our own wisdom. Can't be led by our own plan. It doesn't lead to salvation. It doesn't lead to righteousness. And so what are we called to? As we have faith in Jesus Christ, we're called to be ones who can turn off our ears to the fear of man and say, Now, what I'm called to is live out faith in this context of following after the Lord, of being convinced that what God has said in his word is right and true and just. And that's the guideline I want to live by. Not by my own feelings, not by the voice of this world, and not to fear what others think, but to have a godly fear that leads me towards righteousness, that compels me to live a life of faith. And so as I think about God's mercy and I make much of that, I am settled in my faith that God is merciful to me and therefore it changes how I live with those around me. I do not fear their opinion of me. Perhaps for all of us, no matter what age we are, we need to consider today if there are ways that I've lived in fear of someone else and the need to confess that before the Lord. And to say, I don't need to live by the fear of man because God has saved me. He has done the greatest thing that I need in my life. He has brought me to salvation. And I want to confess that I do not need to be led by the opinions of others. This is a topic that you want to think more on. I encourage you to read Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Uh, I think for any of us, it can be a difficult book to read through. It confronts how we often live in our life and the fears that we sometimes even unknowingly live by and are ruled by. And in that book, Ed Welch is compelling us to make much of God and who he is and little of ourselves because of our faith in him. God's mercy brought me into salvation. I have little to fear in this life of what others think of me because I have freedom in life in Christ. I don't have to be captivated by the fear of this world. But to be free knowing that I'm living according to God's word in Christ that he has redeemed me and made me a new creation. So not only does our faith inform the frustration of this world and our fear of man, but lastly I think our fear our faith informs my fear of failure. Noah was given a huge task. How was he going to build this boat? How is he going to get all the animals on the boat? How is he going to keep all the animals alive while they're at sea? And then whenever he's getting off, what does life even look like after that? There are probably a lot of ways that Noah could have feared failing at his task. I can't imagine the pressure that he lived under. And yet, He continued to obey. He did everything that God had commanded him. Why? Well, from that text in Hebrews 11, his faith forming a godly fear in which he didn't need to fear failure because it wasn't completely his work. So it was God's plan, not Noah's plan. It was God's plan being worked out. And so I wonder in what ways we fear failure in this life as if we can control everything as if I have to make sure that what I'm working at has to succeed or God's not going to like me or God's going to be disappointed in my life. The reality is for all of us as sinners and as broken humans, we will face failure. We can't live in fear of that failure because the most important thing that we need accomplished in our life has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. And therefore our mercy That we receive from God, God's mercy to us compels us in our faith that we would trust him more to say, God, even though I know at times I might fail in this life and I don't always know what's happening, I can trust that your plan will be worked out because you are a faithful God who has promised to accomplish what you said you would do. And so I have faith in God's plan, knowing that he will work it out to completion. Faith that tells me that God is in control even when I fail. And therefore, I make much more of God and his plan than I do of me and my plans. Often, my plans matter very little. And therefore, I need to have a right perception that if they fail, I'm trusting in God. And my life isn't over, hasn't come to an end. I can't, I don't have to just be done. I can carry on. I can continue to trust God and have faith in him. So I think whether we're facing the frustration of this world or fear of man or our fear of failure, faith informs that that God was merciful towards his creation in the life of Noah to sustain Noah and his family and a a bit of his creation through the flood. We're not going to take time today to see the rest of the story, but I trust many of us know it well that it rains. There is the flood and yet the ark survives and these humans and these animals survive and God continues on with Noah's line for us to have confidence in this life today that God's plan works. It is the best plan. It is the right plan. And so even though we might live in a world full of wickedness and sin and we ourselves have fallen hearts that often distract us from God's work. We must remember we want to live according to God's plan. We want to live with hearts settled in faith that God is working out his salvation in us and through us because of Jesus Christ. In God's mercy, he's accomplished the plan of salvation. Do you trust it? Do you trust it in every aspect of life? Do you have faith that his plan is going to work? Because that helps us not focus on what I think is best in this life or what I think will make me happy, but to focus on that final day. That in the end, there is salvation in which I will stand before his throne. And when I look back on all the things done in this life, much of it will matter very little. And what will matter is my heart settled on the Lord and all the things that he gives me to accomplish, to rejoice in the faith that he has given to us. And so we are called to live obediently and follow Christ through faith. Our faith informs all that we do in this life. And therefore in a world of wickedness, have faith in God's plan. Would you pray with me? God, we rejoice in the gift of salvation that we have through Jesus Christ alone. That through your salvation that you have given to us, we might rejoice in this life. That we don't have to worry about the things around us. We don't have to be captivated by our fear of others or the corruption of this world. We don't have to be captivated by our fear of failing. But to know that you accomplished your plan through Christ so that we don't have to. It's not our work. So God, give us faith that changes the way that we live as we walk out these doors, as we go into the rest of life. We'd have faith settled in your work. So, Lord, work in our hearts that we might make much of you and rejoice in your plan of salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.